So I hope you have your seatbelt fastened and your brain engaged with a lot of caffeine because uh, it's not going to be an easy message, but I think one that is important. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. There are outlines in your bulletin. There are full printed messages of the manuscript at both or all three exits, and uh, there are all of the messages online as well. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was still telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. If you track at all with the news, it's um, really easy to become anxious about all of the widespread evil that's taking place all over the world every day. We've got ISIS in the Middle East just committing unspeakable atrocities. Uh, Al-Qaeda is still continuing their campaign of worldwide terror. Uh, About the only TV I watch is in the afternoon when I work out, and that's the Phoenix News, but it's depressing too because often, almost always, there are reports of murder, armed robbery, child abuse, uh, that sort of thing going on. Uh, If you get Voice of the Martyrs, as I do, their monthly thing reports stories of horrible persecutions going on against Christians around the world. And you can come away from all of that just wondering, is, is God really in control of the world? Now, here in America, so far, we're not suffering persecution, thankfully, But even sometimes maybe when you've gone through a difficult trial, or maybe you're in one now, it's easy to begin to question, well, where is God 
in all of this? And does God really love me? Or somehow is he on vacation taking care of business over on the other side of the world or what? Now, in our text, the main idea here is that God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over evil rulers. He's sovereign over evil events. And at the climax of history, there's going to be this most powerful, hideously evil ruler who ever has come on the scene. And he's going to gain a worldwide following in opposition to Christ. And yet, our text shows, Paul shows, that all of this is part of God's prophetic plan that God is in charge. And Paul's point in our text, we need to keep this in mind because we're going to plunge into a lot of details and you might lose the big picture. He's not writing here to give a timetable for end times events so you can fill in your prophecy chart and go, ooh, ah, look at that, you know, and fit it all together. That's not his point. His point is pastoral. He wants to give comfort to a people, new believers that that they were, who are suffering horrible persecution. Uh, Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, Paul is convinced that all men and events are in the hand of God, and he writes to assure them that whatever happens, God is over all. Now, as I said, we're going to have to grapple, though, with a number of difficult interpretive matters in these verses, and I'll, I'll try to explain them as I work through the text, but I need to deal with one right up front because it's kind of a, a major divide. Now, I understand most of you, probably, as I was, uh, are coming out of the viewpoint that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation, and then there will be the seven-year tribulation, and then Christ will come again. Um, and uh, as I said, I, I was taught that. I held that until recent years I've been studying, and I just don't see two second comings of Christ in the Bible. And as I've read, even those who argue for a pre-tribulation rapture admit you have to infer it. And I'm thinking, really? That's a pretty major doctrine not to be stated plainly. And the divide becomes pretty evident here in our text. Those who hold to the pre-tribulation rapture contend that in our text, the problem Paul was addressing is that some false teachers had come into the Thessalonian church and taught them, you missed the rapture. You missed the rapture. And you're now in the day of the Lord, and that's, of course, including the tribulation. And so the advocates of the pre-trib rapture view say Paul is reminding them that he has taught them in the past that day won't come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And since those two major events haven't happened, therefore, they are not in this terrible day of the Lord. Uh, I just ask you to think with me on this. I'm not saying that you have to agree with me, but think it through. It seems to me there are several problems with that viewpoint. Uh, One is, if the Thessalonians thought that they had missed the rapture, it seems to me that Paul then would have said, 
don't you remember that while I was with you, I told you we'd be raptured? We aren't going to be a part of the tribulation? That would be the way if somebody thought they were mistaken on that, that I would deal with that. And instead, he gives them these two signs to look for. Well, why would he give them signs to look for if they aren't even going to be there? Um, that doesn't make sense. You know, you got remember, you got to watch for this and watch for this. Well, but you won't be there to watch for it. It just, to me, doesn't make sense that he taught them that. Robert Culver, a, a systematic theologian, uh, mentions a second problem with that view. And uh, he mentions in his book that he talked directly in his office to Dr. Walverd, who is one of the main proponents of the pre-trib rapture, about this. But here's what Dr. Culver said. It is unreasonable to suppose that they thought the rapture had occurred And all the congregation, including their elders and others who had endured much persecution for the Lord's sake, had been left behind. Did they suppose that Paul himself, and perhaps Silas and Timothy, all of whom probably kept in communication with Thessalonica, had missed the rapture too? A third major problem, I think, with this view is that those who hold to the pre-trib rapture say that the coming of Christ, notice in verse 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together him, and by the way, that's the same wording that's used over in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, It's the word parousia. What they're arguing is that in verse 1, it refers to the pre-tribulation rapture, And then down in verse 8, the same word is used. And there they say, no, that's not the pre-trib rapture. That's the post-tribulation second coming of Christ. And it seems to me that the burden of proof is on those who say, Paul uses the same word in the same context in two different ways, and he doesn't explain himself. Um, I don't think so. I think he's talking about the same coming in both instances. Also, I think it's important to realize that Paul's teaching on the end times is quite certainly built on Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, Mark chapter 13. Um, Jesus' teaching in those verses, uh, almost all commentators, including pre-trib rapture adherents, say that's talking about the second coming at the end of the tribulation and not a pre-trib rapture. And uh, Dr. Culver cites a source that lists 24 correspondences between Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse and Paul's teaching in Thessalonian, the two Thessalonian letters. And so I think it's unlikely that Paul is referring to the parousia, the coming of the Lord here, Uh, in this text to refer to two different events in verses 1 and 8. I think they both refer to his coming after the tribulation. So then the question is, well, what was the problem Paul was addressing then in the text? Uh, Dr. Douglas Moo um, says that the verbs suggest that the Thessalonians were agitated and unsettled, abandoning their normal common sense and daily pursuits, 
in nervous excitement over the nearness of the end. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 3. Some had quit working and were sponging off the body, that sort of thing. Uh, Dr. Greg Beal, who happened to have been a classmate of mine in seminary, but now teaches at uh, Westminster Seminary, he thinks that the false teachers were claiming that Christ's coming and resurrection had already happened. And um, Dr. Beale says, so that there should be no present expectation of any future occurrence of either of these events. He supports his conclusion there by the events in Corinth, where Paul was when he wrote this letter. And there, in chapter 15, some denied that there would be a future resurrection. And Paul strongly refutes that in 1 Corinthians 15. And also, Dr. Beale says, this may have entailed a belief that there would be no final coming of Christ at all. And there he refers to the false teachers that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 2, who were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place and thus were upsetting the faith of many. Uh, There's a modern version of this called extreme preterism. And interestingly, there's a man from Flagstaff who wrote a book or booklet, about 100 pages, um, advocating uh, this view. And the view is this. Jesus returned spiritually in A.D. 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem, and that was it. There will not be a future bodily return of Christ. And um, I contended with this guy over at Late for the Train some years back for some time, He's really deceptive when you talk to him because you say, well, do you believe in a future coming of Christ? Oh, yeah. And then you pin him down, and what he means is he comes every time we sense his presence with us. He comes spiritually. And you pin him down more and say, do you believe that he is coming back bodily in power and glory? Well, he doesn't believe that. And I told him, I said, you've robbed us of hope. (laughs) You know, that's the only hope for this world is Jesus is coming again and he's going to rule uh, the nations with a rod of iron. So um, Paul gives a warning here and says, you know, don't let anyone deceive you about these matters. And that applies certainly to this uh, modern view that some propound this false teaching of extreme preterism. Now, um, I'm going to try and deal with a lot of the details in the text. I can't hit it all because we'd be here till our 5 o'clock meeting if I did. But the main idea of our text is this, that believers, hope that's you, can have comfort in the midst of, of trials, persecution, worldwide evil, because of this fact. God is sovereign over all, and in his time he's going to judge all evil doers. First of all, let's look at the fact that although there's always been evil in the world, just before Christ comes back, it's going to get much worse. Um, When we studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we saw that the day of the Lord that Paul mentions here refers to the time in history when God intervenes for judgment on Uh, his enemies, or deliverance and blessing for his people. 
And in the Old Testament prophets, there were some, we might call them precursor days of the Lord. That is, when God intervened to judge Israel's enemies, he delivered his people and so on. But the final day of the Lord that all of those pointed ahead to is when God is going to um, save us, his people. He's going to judge the world. Um, It started with the first coming of Christ. It will culminate in his glorious second coming. And so the one that Paul is, the day of the Lord Paul is referring to in our text, I think, begins with the tribulation period and concludes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says before that event happens, uh, two main things must happen. First of all, there's going to be unprecedented apostasy, and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But then there's another thing. Before the man of lawlessness can be revealed, Paul says the restrainer has to be removed. So let's look at those three things. First of all, Paul says, unprecedented apostasy will come. And apostasy means those who profess Christ fall away from Christ. That's the idea. They made a profession of faith, then persecution or trials or something comes, and like the uh, seed on the stony ground or the seed that's choked out by the thorns, they end up denying Christ. He adds in verse 7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, Mystery there refers to that which is hidden and known only by God's revelation, but now has been given. So we look around, we see a lot of lawlessness happening. Uh, Dr. Beale thinks that Paul is referring here... um, to the Antichrist prophecy that occurs in Daniel 11. In verse 4 of our text, Paul mentions that um, Daniel's prophecy was initially fulfilled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, I think the fourth. But he was a godless um, man who got a fourth of the kingdom when Alexander the Great died. And he came down into Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple. He claimed to be God. So that was an initial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 11. And then uh, what Paul writes here is going to be the final fulfillment with this man of lawlessness. He will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, even though he has not yet appeared, he, or the power behind him, Satan, is already at work through this mystery of lawlessness, promoting rebellion against God. We see that more and more in our culture now, where people just cast off all semblance of obedience to God and his moral standards, and they glory in uh, debauchery and sin. Um, when these, these false teachers that were plaguing Thessalonica, and they've done it since the earliest days of the church, I think, though, that kind of thing is going to increase 
as the end time draws near. In the Olivet Discourse there in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13, Jesus gave this warning. He said, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. That's the apostasy. And will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And so the application for us is... Doctrine is really important, and sound doctrine is really important, and we need to be on guard at all times against false teaching that the enemy is continually trying to bring into the church. Satan attacks churches frontally with persecution, and then deceptively and subtly with false teaching. And we may think, well, you know, this error Paul's dealing with here is kind of minor, But Paul shows it's causing some in the church to be disturbed and shaken in their faith, verse 2. And um, I believe the lesson is, again, sound doctrine brings steadfastness, it brings peace. False doctrine, when you buy into it, brings anxiety and it makes you vulnerable to further false uh, teaching. And so be on guard because as the day of the Lord draws near, We're going to see this tsunami of false teaching just flooding into churches. And these will be professing Christian churches. And they're going to be turning away from the truth of the Bible. And I see that all the time. I'm not saying we're there yet, but it is increasing. A second sign that Paul gives is this restrainer will be removed. I was tempted to say, you got it, and move on. And uh, you would all know what he means, right? Well, no, that's the problem. We don't know what Paul means. The Thessalonians knew. Paul says, "I remember I told you when I was with you that this would happen. Uh, but he leaves us out of, the, uh, out of the loop. And the problem becomes more complex because in verse 6, The Greek participle is a neuter, what restrains him now? And then in verse 7, Paul shifts to a masculine participle, he who now restrains. Um, As you can expect with something like this, there are multiple speculations, views by commentators. John MacArthur, some of you probably on your lap have his study Bible, uh, he down on the footnote there, lists eight different suggestions. One is human government. Uh, Two is the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Three, the binding of Satan. Four, the providence of God. Five, the Jewish state. Six, the church. Seven, the Holy Spirit. And eight, Michael the archangel. So... Shall I take a vote? Well, no. But um, MacArthur himself understands it to be the Holy Spirit. But interestingly, 
contrary to many who hold to a pre-trib rapture, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit will be removed when the church is removed at the start of the tribulation. Uh, he argues that the Holy Spirit will continue his restraining work until the middle of the tribulation when it will cease and the man of lawlessness will have free reign during the last half of the tribulation. Um, There's an early church father named John Chrysostom, and he said the restrainer could be the Holy Spirit, so that view was known way back then, about the 4th century, but Chrysostom rejected that view because he said it's unlikely that Paul would have referred to the Spirit in such enigmatic language. He would have just stated it's the Spirit, and so Chrysostom leaned toward the view it was the Roman Empire or uh, government human government. Dr. Beale argues that the restrainer is an angel who is representing God's government sovereignty in restraining evil. Um, He's restraining the gates of hell against the church so that during the church age, the gospel proclamation is effective, uh, spreading around the world. And at the end of the age, this angel will be withdrawn and then Dr. Beale says, literally, all hell will break loose. Um, He bases that partly on the fact that Paul is referring here to the prophecy in Daniel 11. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, there's that intriguing passage in Daniel 10 where Daniel prays and the angel comes to him finally and says, I would have been here sooner, but I got hung up contending with the prince of Persia and... uh, Three weeks later, here I am. And it's one of those window shade goes up and goes down in Scripture where you go, wow, you know, the angels are contending. And here this one angel has dominance over Persia and the good angel is fighting against him. So Dr. Beale applies that here and says that it's kind of dovetailing with the government view that uh, this angel or God's angels are restraining evil through human government until the time God withdraws them. Uh, it may be. I, these views are all kind of tentative. <clears throat> uh, George Ladd offers an interesting suggestion, and that is that in verse 7, the phrase, he that is taken out of the way, uh, should be translated, and this is a literal Greek translation, until he come out of the midst. And so Dr. Ladd suggested that the verses are are speaking about Antichrist being the restrainer there in verse 7. And he shows that verses 6 and 7 then have a parallel form. Um, Verse 6a reads, You know what restrains him now, namely God's power, so that in his time he, Antichrist, will be revealed. And then verse 7 repeats the same idea, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who restrains, uh, that is God, will do so until he, Antichrist, comes out of the midst, meaning, same thing as verse 6, till he is revealed. So, Bottom line is, with all of these different views of the restrainer, nobody, not even 
the best commentators can be dogmatic. Uh, They have to acknowledge, you know, uh, there's a certain unknown factor here. And uh, the way that I was taught that the Holy Spirit in the church is the restrainer and we'll all get raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, that's reading a view into these verses. It's not drawing a view out of these verses. You see that, what I'm saying? It's eisegesis, not exegesis. Because you just can't read that out of here. You have to come with that framework and then say, oh, this supports that. Well, if you assume it, it does. But you can't um, derive it from this text. What we can know from the text is that God is the one who sovereignly determines when the restrainer is removed. This man of lawlessness will be revealed. And this is what that means. Biblical prophecy does not mean that God, who is omniscient, looks down through history and says, oh, here's how it's going to turn out. That's not biblical prophecy. God determines how it will turn out. He is sovereign over it. And that's a big difference. And yet you say, well, then does that mean sinners are robots? Not at all. They are all responsible for their sin, including this man of lawlessness. He will be judged. And so, um, first of all, this apostasy happens. This restrainer, force, person, is removed. And then thirdly, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Now, some manuscripts have a man, the man of sin and uh, there are good manuscripts on both sides of that issue. But 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. And so it doesn't really matter. Uh, it means this man of means he's characterized by lawlessness, by rebellion against God. He's inciting people to cast off restraint, cast off the rule of God, and do whatever you want to do. Because you are God. That kind of thing. Um, He is also called in verse 3. The son of destruction. And son of is again a Hebrew expression. That means that guy is characterized by destruction. Now the um, New American Standard Bible translates that exact same phrase in Greek. In John 17.12. The son of perdition. And there it refers to Judas Iscariot. And here's a mystery again, but you got to chew on this. I think it means that Judas and the son of lawlessness, man of lawlessness, were both predestined to hell. And yet, they're responsible for their behavior. That's a mystery. I can't explain that, how God can do that. But, That's what the phrase means. He is destined for perdition, for judgment, for condemnation. And yet God raises him up for this end-time purpose. Then God rightly judges him. And I can't explain it any further than that. Now, Paul uses here the same language for the appearing of the man of lawlessness as he does for Christ's appearing. I want you to see this. In verses 1 and 8, we read of the coming 
of Christ. And the word there used in Greek is the parousia. It means the presence, the, the appearance of Christ. Um, then in um, verse 9, we read of the parousia, the coming of the man of lawlessness. Same phrase. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, it says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven. And the word there is apocalypto. He, he will be made evident and manifest. And he'll do that with um, <clears throat> from heaven. In verse 3 of our text, verse 6 of our text, in verse 8, it says, the lawless one will be revealed. And the same Greek word, apocalypto. In chapter 1 and verse 7, when Jesus is revealed, it will be in power and glory with his mighty angels in flaming fire and so on. Uh, in verse 9, you'll notice the lawless one will come with all power and signs and false wonders. And those terms are frequently used in the Gospels to refer to the mighty miracles Jesus did. And so John Stott is correct when he says, the coming of Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is a deliberate and unscrupulous parody of the second coming of Christ. And so Satan is going to masquerade this guy. Here is your Savior. And he will come and he will do all these things. And everyone who is misled, who is deceived, will follow him. He is going to be empowered by Satan then to lead this widespread, worldwide deception, lawlessness, and rebellion against Jesus Christ. Verse 4 He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. And that's the final fulfillment of what Daniel prophesies as the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9.27. Jesus indicated that would still yet come It came again in A.D. 70, and yet it still awaits this evil future ruler. Now, verse 4 raises another difficult interpretive issue. And that is, what does he mean when he says uh, the temple of God? Um, Many dispensationalists, that's the people who hold to the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, Uh, they believe it refers to a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And uh, Dr. Thomas, who uh, expounds that view, argues that there is an obvious connection between Daniel 9, 11, and 12 uh, with this that demands that interpretation. If that is so, then, again, that would mean, I think, that there would be offering animal sacrifices on the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, I think Peter would have a problem with that. But uh, that's the view, that there is going to be this future rebuilt temple. The Jews will be offering sacrifices. That view, according to Dr. Beale, however, and I would agree with him on this, 
has a lot of problems. For one thing, um, Dr. Beale says, 2 Thessalonians 2.3 does not appear to be talking about an apostasy from the faith in a geographically conceived Israel. In other words, um, he goes on, he says, it is difficult to conceive of chapter 2, verse 3, as alluding to an apostasy of unbelievers among the nations who are not part of a visible church since they possess no belief from which to fall away. In other words, the apostasy needs to be, um, as he puts it, a yet future falling away in the church throughout the world. So if it's in the temple in Jerusalem, that's Judaism. It's not Christianity, and it would not be um, what fits the apostasy here, which refers to the church. Uh, Beale also argues, he says the same phrase, God's temple, is found nine other times in the New Testament outside of Second Thessalonians, and it almost always refers either to Christ or the church. Not once, he says, in Paul, five other times Paul uses it outside of Second Thessalonians, does it refer to a literal temple in Israel of past or future. So Dr. Beale thinks it's referring to the church in a um, symbolic way. Other writers, John Stott, F.F. Bruce, Gary Shogren, and uh, George Ladd, they understand the temple here to have a metaphorical sense. Dr. Ladd puts it this way. He says it's a metaphorical way of expressing in Old Testament language his defiance of God. And he cites several references there from Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Now, Paul goes on and explains in verses 10 through 12 that by these satanic miracles, this man of lawlessness is going to come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them, he says, a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now that phrase, believe what is false, is literally uh, they believe the lie. The lie. And the lie they believe is Antichrist is God. This man of lawlessness is God himself. And so as a result, God is going to send this deluding influence to ensure their judgment. We need to understand, as 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God does not deceive. And yet the scriptures are clear. God uses even demons to deceive people to achieve his purpose of judgment. He did that with Ahab in the Old Testament, and he will do it in the future. Now, just when things are at their worst, then, and this is the second main point in our text, in God's sovereign timetable, Jesus Christ is going to return. He will slay the man of lawlessness, and he will judge all who were deceived by him. Just two things is all I have time to mention that stand out here. 
First of all, as I just said, although God is apart from all evil, God sovereignly uses evildoers to accomplish his predetermined purpose. He does that here with the man of lawlessness. The text is very clear. It's not like this guy's going to come on the scene, gain the upper hand. God's going to say, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. What am I going to do? Uh, let's see, we got to put together a battle plan to beat this. It's not that kind of scene at all that is portrayed here. As Leon Morris puts it this way, he says, throughout this whole passage, the thought of God's sovereignty is dominant. In other words, God is in control of all these end-time events. He allows this man of lawlessness to come on the scene, and he deceives, in verse 10, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And then, in God's appointed time, Christ appears, slaying the lawless one, and judging, according to verse 12, all who did not believe in the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And so the point is, no one can, can thwart or even throw off for a second God's sovereign plan for the ages. God accomplishes his purposes. And then, second point here is that when Christ returns, he's going to effortlessly slay this most powerful ruler the world has ever known, and he's going to do it with the breath of his mouth. The guy's gone. It's going to, not going to be uh, a big battle. And I think Paul is referring to Isaiah 11.4, and this is speaking of Messiah. It says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Or in Revelation 19.15, we have a picture of the second coming of Jesus, and it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And so it's not going to be like the Super Bowl where you're going, oh, who's going to win? You know, I don't know. I hope they, oops, now they, you know, it's not that kind of deal. It's not that kind of thing. Christ is going to come back and effortlessly, instantly, he can annihilate this powerful world ruler, and then all who have opposed him will be judged, all who have believed in him will be delivered finally and forever from all evildoers, and we will be glorified with him, as we'll see in our text next week. Now, I have dumped a lot of stuff on you this morning. And uh, it's kind of like the book of Revelation. Every time I read Revelation, I kind of get lost in the details and think, man, I don't know, that could be this, that could be that. All, all the details are kind of murky and debated. But the big idea of Revelation is very, very clear. And that is this. Jesus Christ is going to return bodily in great power and glory, and he is going to win big time. And you better be on his side when that happens because it's going to be a fearful time for those who uh, have not. And so make sure, make sure that you're not among those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, as verse 10 says. 
And make sure that you're not one of those who, as verse 12 says, did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And make sure that you are one of those who loves the truth by believing the gospel and repenting of your sin. And that's the way that we all can have comfort in this evil world. As we see things going from bad to worse, we can look up because our redemption draws nigh and we can believe that Jesus is coming to save us and not to judge us. Let's bow together before him. Uh, Father, we come before you thanking you for the clarity of the main point, even though admittedly, Lord, um, as your people, we get uh, hung up on some of the details. But we thank you for the clear and certain promise that just as Jesus went into heaven bodily, in power and glory, He's coming back again on the clouds, and every eye shall see him. The trump will resound. The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive and remain will be caught up to be with him, and so we will be with you forever. So we thank you for these promises. I do pray if any are here who have not loved the truth and believed it so as to be saved, that they would see they're on the wrong side and they're going to be facing your judgment and that even before this day is out, they would turn to you in repentance and faith and lay hold of the sacrifice of Christ, which is sufficient for all who believe in him. I pray, Lord, that we would not be shaken by all of the tumultuous events around us. If we suffer, that we would not have our faith shaken, but know that you're sovereign even over our suffering and that our trust, our hope would be in Jesus even as the day draws nigh. So I ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.